Welcome to On Spec, where you can hear stories that bring you closer to the globe. This is Farid Banawa, your host. Pakistan is a country of 200 million people, but not all of its citizens are privy to the same rights. One of the marginalized groups are called Pakhtuns, or Patans. There are about 5 million in what has become, in the popular imagination, the badlands of the country, a wild west whose people cannot be tamed. But after America's war on terror began in their midst, that image has become outdated, showing that Pashtuns want to become part of the greater Pakistan, forsaking the warrior identity for civil rights. But their battle for inclusion continues to be a struggle. Pakistani-American journalist Omar Farooq is going to tell us more. He's based in Istanbul, but he travels all around the Middle East and South Asia to do stories for the Los Angeles Times and other publications. Just outside the city of Peshawar, the road heading towards Kabul passes under an arch called the Babi Rickshaws, trucks, and all kinds of traffic whiz by. It looks like an ordinary road, but it's a gateway to one of the most dangerous places in the world, Pakistan's tribal areas. There are no police here, no courts, laws that apply in the rest of Pakistan, from those protecting the press to those protecting women, don't apply here. More than 400 U.S. drone strikes have hit here, killing some of the most wanted leaders in Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. The war on terror brought the world's attention, but little benefit for the more than 5 million people living here. There are few schools or hospitals and sporadic water and electricity. The literacy rate for women is just 3%. But change is on the horizon. In May 2018, Pakistan's parliament extended the constitution to the region. It's the first step in a long process, but it's an important one. And it might even be the only way to bring peace across the border in neighboring Afghanistan, where a 40-year war has been raging. Sluggish indeed would be the imagination that was not stirred by the Khyber Pass. Through that bleak road to India marched the army of Alexander the Great, and even today some pass through as though untouched by the progress of more than 2,000 years. For this is the forbidding highway holding the strategic key between the subcontinent... A hundred years ago, Pakistan and the tribal areas were part of the British Empire. But the English had a hard time keeping the peace tribesmen could easily cross into Afghanistan and out of reach of the British. So in 1893, the British made an agreement with the Emir of Afghanistan to mark a de facto border between British-controlled India and Afghanistan. The contested border is called the Durand Line. If the Khar Malik is a historian at Bath Spa University in the UK... They created um, some kind of semi-autonomous regions on this side of the Durand Line which they call agencies, and they um, sort of gave some kind of so-called autonomy uh, to the local people, to their chieftains, through their maliks, the tribal chieftains. And uh, they appointed their own um, administrators called political agents. Uh, So this was a kind of dual system of administration. So this was about 20 to 30 mile wide territory 
on this side, on the eastern side of the Durand Line, which was called the Tribal Territory, and later on, when Pakistan came into being in 1947, it was called FATA, Federally Administered Tribal Areas. Pakistan only granted locals the right to vote in 1997, 50 years after the rest of the country. Under the law, you weren't really an individual. Your life revolved around someone called a political agent. Think of him as a medieval sheriff. Say you killed a soldier. Under the law at the time, your whole tribe was punished collectively. Your village could be razed. Your clan or tribe could be sent into exile. Even women and children could be held hostage until the fugitives the political agent wanted were turned over. People had no, you know, access, not only to the judicial system, but also to other civil and political institutions. And there were no schools, no hospitals, no factories, no railways. So for a long time, this area was kept, uh, you know, sort of underdeveloped. Fast forward to September 11, 2001. Oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. Has just I did not see a plane go in. That, that just exploded. We I, just saw another plane coming saw, in from the side. You did. I did that was out of absolute Yes, and that's view. the second explosion. You could see the plane. The tribal areas became ground zero in the war on terror and the search for Osama bin Laden. Here's Pakistan's then military dictator, Pervez Musharraf, talking to the press at Camp David before Pakistan sent troops to fight jihadists in the tribal areas. This is the first time that the Pakistan army and our civil armed forces have entered this region and we are in the process of opening out this region. Now, if at all any Al-Qaeda operative is hiding in this region, we are after them. Now, whether Osama bin Laden is here or across the border, your guess, sir, will be as good as mine. Musharraf and later Pakistani leaders pointed to the legal vacuum there. They said it was too difficult to pacify. But they also refused to pursue any kind of sustainable solution, like extending Pakistan's laws there. That's what the locals living there wanted. Whenever the thousands of Al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters in Afghanistan were under fire, they simply crossed over into Pakistan's tribal areas. Armed with guns and cash, they wreaked havoc on the locals. Tribal elders were asked to do the impossible. To defeat an enemy, Pakistan, a nuclear power, could not. U.S. drone strikes didn't just hit people on a list. They killed locals attending funerals, children at madrasas, shoppers in crowded markets. No one was held accountable for civilian deaths. Courts refused to hear the handful of cases filed by survivors of drone attacks. They had no jurisdiction. President Obama justified the drone strikes in 2013. Obviously, a lot of these strikes have been in the, the Fatah uh, and going after al-Qaeda suspects who uh, are up in very tough terrain along the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, for us to be able to get them in another way uh, would involve probably a lot more uh, intrusive military actions than the one that we're already engaging in.
For leaders in Washington and Islamabad, it was good for PR. Washington could target and kill its most wanted. Islamabad could say it was trying to help. Locals were left in the middle. Pakistan formed tribal militias among locals to fight al-Qaeda. They summoned journalists to watch a dance of war, like this one in South Waziristan in 2004. Tribesmen showed off their guns. They sounded off the drums of war, telling the world not to worry, that the proud tribesmen would handle things like they always had. The tribal elder tells reporters they're making a militia of 600 armed fighters. And although he hasn't seen any al-Qaeda himself, he promises they'll find them. Also on hand for the cameras is the political agent. Remember the medieval sheriff. He writes down the names of tribal leaders and assures the media they'll be responsible for getting rid of al-Qaeda from their area. As expected, the tribesmen failed. Three days later, Pakistani troops began a week-long pitched battle with hundreds of al-Qaeda fighters. They thought Ayman al-Zawahiri, bin Laden's deputy, was there, but he wasn't caught. In Islamabad, the tribesmen were blamed. It was the first major skirmish between the army and al-Qaeda, and it was a pattern of blaming locals. Kabul Sher Afridi is an elder from the Afridi tribe. His family home is in Rajgal, in a place called the Tira Valley. It sits right across the border from Afghanistan's Tora Bora Mountains. In the 1980s, Kabul Sher packed a gun and set off for a jihad in Afghanistan to fight the Soviet invasion. He still keeps a pistol strapped to his side. Before the war, under the old laws, the political agent could exercise powers and the system worked well. He is basically powerless now. Back then, we could sit down and figure out a solution. But all that changed after 2001. Al-Qaeda was pushed out of Tora Bora and into places like Tira. Islamabad, through the political agents, asked Kabul Sher's tribe to find and fight them. Kabul Sher picked up a gun again, but they were no match for Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. He barely survived a rocket attack on his own home. Entire tribes, including Kabul Sher's, were exiled as punishment. Based near Peshawar, he's been waiting now for more than a decade for permission to return home. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban killed at least a thousand tribal elders. Kabul Sher's brother was one of them. Some were ambushed in broad daylight. Others were killed by a suicide bomber at a tribal meeting. Thousands of others fled to other parts of Pakistan. Without them, the tribal system of governance broke down. Now, 
even elders like Kabul Sher don't want the autonomy they had for more than a century. A few kilometers down the road from Babi Khaber, it's easy to find locals locked up because someone else in their tribe was suspected of a crime. Kabir Afridis from a tribe that lives on both sides of the border. They've owned land across the storied Khyber Pass for more than a thousand years. In modern times, they ran the trucking business here. They hauled goods between Pakistan and Afghanistan. After the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, this route became the principal supply line for NATO forces. Everything from military rations to weapons and ammunition was trucked up from Pakistan's coast through here to Afghanistan. From local highway robbers to the Taliban to everyone, it seemed like, took a turn looting those trucks. He's been arrested dozens of times. He's used to collective punishment. This is the route used to supply the U.S. and NATO. On the way, extremists open fire on the trucks and they run away. This time, the political agent come and took from the tribe. How many? 25. 25 people. Others were able to get away. How did they pick up the first 25 people? Did they go to their homes? Our people, they are poor. They work as labor all day. They sit here in the evening. They wait for the bus to pick them up, to take them home. On those buses, the Hasadar comes. He tells them, hands up. Everyone puts their hands up and they arrest them. Whenever they see them, they arrest them. If they see you in bazaar, they arrest you. If they see you at home, they arrest you. The war killed tens of thousands, but it had one silver lining. At one point, more than half the tribal population was living in exile. Scattered around Pakistan, for many, it was the first time living in a place with law and order. Many of them opened businesses or went to schools and universities. Among them was student leader Shaukat Aziz. At first, we were just working on education. We were inside FATA, and we saw the system. We would go to solve problems, and they would make more problems for us. The political agents would arrest us without reason. They were corrupt. They would not let us speak or talk to media. They kept arresting us. Finally, we decided the whole system is wrong. With no way of enforcing even basic laws in the tribal regions, Aziz and the others soon realized the whole system needed to change. They want to keep using the tribal areas for their own reasons, for international goals, for the supposed benefit of Pakistan. How long you will be used FATA? Is there no other place in Pakistan? You made Lahore into a palace, Islamabad into a palace. Don't the kids in FATA want to an education? Don't they have any talent? 
Don't they have any right to freedom? Don't they have any human rights? We feel like we are not the part of this world. The UN is silent. All these international rights groups are silent. Tribal calls for reform were finally heard in 2015, a month after the Taliban killed 149 people. Breaking this morning, Taliban militants terrorizing a school in northern Pakistan. At least 100 people killed, mostly children. At least two teachers among the deceased. This crisis unfolding at a military-run school in Peshawar. The attack shocked Pakistan and prompted a new military offensive in the tribal areas. And Pakistan also realized that giving the tribes individual rights was just as important. Finally, the tribes were going to become full citizens of Pakistan, at least on paper. Instead of putting the onus on locals, Islamabad finally admitted it needed to take charge, just as it was in the rest of the country. Students like Aziz stepped up street protests in Pakistan. They even got meetings with the country's military leadership. The powerful were on board. 229 members cast votes for eyes and one for nose. Consequently, bill is passed by the National Assembly by not less than two-thirds of the total membership of the Assembly. The constitutional amendment passed in May 2018 replaced the British-imposed 1901 collective punishment laws. The tribal areas have been made a part of Pakistan. 71 years after the country won independence from the British. The feared political agent is just a bureaucrat now. Money is being earmarked for building much-needed infrastructure. Thousands of tribal citizens have filed lawsuits seeking justice in Pakistani courts. The night the law changed, celebrations broke out across the tribal areas. Babi Heber was lit up with fireworks. Pakistan still has a long way to go, but it's one step closer to making the most dangerous place in the world safer. This is Umar Farooq for On Spec in the Khaber Pass. Welcome back to On Spec. Omar Farooq is with me in Istanbul. We just listened to a story about Pakistan. So, Omar, tell me, what's happened since you visited the tribal areas? Are we seeing changes? 
um, the tribal areas were absorbed into a neighboring province, the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. Uh, the laws of Pakistan are technically extended to those areas. But the problem is a lot of that is on paper. Uh, the issue now is that the Pakistani military is still um, based there. You know, there's tens of thousands of troops based in the tribal areas. And what we're seeing is sort of a battle between civilian authorities uh, and elected representatives and who are trying to push and ask for the same rights uh, that should be followed in the rest of Pakistan. But the issue of securitization is stopping them from, from being able to do so. So, What do you mean securitization? So, for example, uh, you know, earlier this year uh, in May, there was a case of the Pakistani military going into a village in North Waziristan, um, apparently looking for someone in the aftermath of an attack that killed some soldiers. And uh, rumors got out that they had, you know, done something terrible in the village. So in response to that, two uh, members of parliament who are from the tribal areas led a delegation of uh, hundreds of civilians to, to go and visit this village. And when they got to one of the checkpoints, they had a big confrontation with the soldiers. Uh, they eventually convinced the soldiers to let them keep walking. But at the next checkpoint, they were stopped again, and the soldiers opened fire on them. Uh, they say that at least 15 people were killed, and um, and then the two parliament members were arrested uh, and they were charged with, you know, things like attacking the military and, and supporting terrorism. And they were in prison for months and months. Um, so this, it's happening off the books sometimes, you know, like the military will still go into a village and like arrest everyone until they figure out who they, who they're looking for, for example. But it's not happening with the cooperation of uh, the civil authorities and the legal protections that it would have happened before. And when that happens now, you technically have a legal right to challenge it in a court somewhere. So this is becoming an international issue because on the other side of the border is Afghanistan. How does what happened in Afghanistan affect the Pakistan's tribal areas? So uh, it has to do with the fact that the Pashtun uh, ethnic minority is based on both sides of the border. And historically, they've had uh, links on both sides of the border, uh, you know, relatives and businesses and things like that uh, have been maintained over the centuries. Um, and so in Pakistan, when, uh, uh, you know, uh, in 2018, this large sort of mass movement called the Pashtun, the Hafuz movement, or the Pashtun protection movement began and quickly grew, you know, people were able to hold huge protests, not only inside the tribal areas, but in major Pakistani cities like Lahore and Karachi. Uh, and they got a lot of support from civil society and their demands were simple. And they included, you know, that the military uh, lift checkpoints in the tribal areas, that the military helped to get rid of landmines that have been put in the tribal areas, but also that the military and the authorities stop sort of daily harassment against Pashtuns in the country. And so this struck uh, a chord with people across the border in Afghanistan. Uh, and so this movement got vocal support, uh, even like at one point, the Afghan president Ashraf Ghani, who himself is an ethnic Pashtun, uh, gave a statement after some student activists were arrested in Pakistan, saying that Pakistan shouldn't be arresting peaceful activists in this way. That, uh, that was sort of one of the examples where this uh, cross-border um, heritage, this cross-border Pashtun presence uh, is, uh, you know, leading to a shared kind of solidarity. 
when in Pakistan, when you have any sort of civil society movement and you have any sort of support coming from outside the country for it, immediately people start saying that these activists are traitors to the country. And so the two parliament members, for example, who were arrested in, in, in May uh, after the massacre at the checkpoint in North, North Waziristan, uh, both of them, you know, are being called traitors now in the country, even though they're elected members of parliament. They were released, right? They were released after several months. They were released. And uh, one of them, Mohsen Dawar, as soon as he was released, he went into parliament and gave this uh, speech explaining exactly what had happened. And he said, I'm not against Pakistan. I'm, I'm Pakistani. I want to see something good happen in this country. Uh, but we need we need to sort of listen to the people on the ground and what their grievances are. And those, one thing to say here that Pashtuns in Afghanistan are the majority, um, and in Pakistan they're the minority. So Pakistani government feels threatened when Afghanistan comes and speaks in solidarity with the minority Pashtuns. Um, but not everybody's innocent in the tribal areas. Some have joined extremist groups or helped support them in the name of holy war. How do you distinguish between the culprits and those caught in between? Well, that was sort of the central problem of the tribal areas. Um, the law allowed for the authorities to not have to distinguish between who is really part of the Taliban or part of Al-Qaeda and who is just a normal civilian. Because we never had accountability for so long, you know, local activists say that they don't trust the military when it says that we went in and sort of cleared this area of the Taliban because they say that the same people that we knew were part of the Taliban like are still running around free and like they're being allowed to go through these checkpoints and return to these areas. So there's never been a process and actually there's been no due process in finding out who's actually guilty and who isn't of joining these extremist groups. Yeah, there hasn't hasn't been any uh, due process there. You know, the law didn't need you to have any trials or anything. Uh, and, and there still isn't. Yeah, there still aren't uh, trials for most of these uh, cases. Uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people are in extrajudicial uh, detention in secret facilities across the tribal areas and outside of the tribal areas uh, without any any due process, without any evidence being given. And the public, like, for example, one of the basic demands by the Pashtun Protection Movement is, uh, you know, they ask the military, you say that you killed... Uh, this number of Taliban members in 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 the war. Uh, give us a name. Uh, give us like names. Give us a list of the commanders that you actually say you killed. Tell us who actually these people were. And that hasn't happened. Okay, that's um, unfortunate, and it doesn't really solve anything. Um, why did you pursue this story with the war in Syria and other conflicts? Pakistan seems like yesterday's news. Well, for one thing, I think that uh, Pakistan is going to be in the news again, and I think that this region is going to be in the news again because a lot of the underlying problems haven't been solved. So I think it's important for people to understand the backstory of the war on terror, uh, to understand why the war in Afghanistan has gone on for so long, um, and to uh, you know, sort of maybe learn lessons of what to do with it in the future. The other sort of journalistic reason was that I think people really don't understand what happened um, in the tribal areas of Pakistan. You got like one or two kinds of news articles from there. You got like uh, a drone strike happening and you get like a one paragraph story saying so-and-so was killed. 
or you got another kind of story, which a lot of Western journalists went and wrote, which was about uh, the Pakistani military and the Pakistani military intelligences uh, working with Al-Qaeda or working with the Taliban in those areas and playing a double game against the U.S. and against the Afghan government, which is true, but I think that that didn't move the conversation forward, especially for the five million people who were living there on the ground, because they were not complicit in, you know, when the ISI went around uh, supporting the Taliban, they were not complicit in this, and they were the victims in this. Usually a journalist is going around looking for kind of the these stories of like when a, an army destroys a whole village to find one person. Uh, because it's sort of a visceral thing that everyone recognizes as an injustice. But in the tribal areas of Pakistan, this was literally the law and this was happening entirely legally and like nobody talked about it. How difficult was it to get access? I mean, this is a dangerous area. Did you travel? The average Pakistani doesn't go there on vacation, for example. Um, did you travel with the military? And how did that sort of affect your reporting when you talk to people? The tribal areas for a long time, uh, there used to be signs put up at the entrances that said foreigners are not allowed beyond this point. So foreigners needed specific permission to go there. Um, I'm not a foreigner, I'm, uh, uh, so I'm considered a Pakistani uh, as well. So technically I can go into these areas. Um, the issue becomes uh, some areas which are, you know, actually not some areas, the whole area is like full of checkpoints at this point because of the war. And for example, the checkpoint going from uh, Bannu to go towards uh, North Waziristan feels like you're crossing an international border. Like everyone gets out of their cars, everything is checked. You get in a line, you get your picture taken, You someone looks you up in a computer system. So I couldn't have gotten through the North Waziristan checkpoint without the military uh, clearing me for it. And so that took two months to, to be cleared. And that... I was accompanied by a military officer uh, for North Waziristan. For the other areas, for a lot of the reporting in this story, uh, like in, in Khyber, for example, uh, I was able to just go in by myself because I had a network of activists and tribal leaders who were willing to share their story with me and host me. So, but how did, you know, when, when people saw you, they in these in North Waziristan, do people see the military as the other? And if they see you coming with them, how does that sort of color the way they talk to you? So uh, the strategy I have, because this is actually a common journalistic situation these days, there's a lot of places in the world you can't get into without being embedded with uh, like a military. The thing about a war is it displaces millions of people and uh, those people know what's going on and you can get to them. So for example, for North Waziristan, I had already spent a lot of time talking to people who had been displaced who were living in towns just outside North Waziristan, people who, or people who went back and forth all the time, you know? And that's how you gather sort of the, uh, the, the critical sort of ground truth uh, that people would be afraid to tell you in front of a soldier. Omar, one of the first things I noticed is that there are no women in your stories. How can you explain that? I did interview a lot of women, a lot of women activists for other stories and things from the tribal areas. But in general, it is difficult uh, to find uh, women out in the public in the tribal areas just because part of it is like the war and the conflict. People are more reluctant to let uh, their women leave the house uh, in, a, in a place like North Waziristan. And then, you know, it 
traditionally was like a very, very patriarchal society. One person, like if you're living in a house, you might not even know how many women and children there are in your neighbor's house because you've maybe never seen them come outside. Um, so it is difficult to sort of find people on the ground uh, just if you're like walking around who are willing to talk to strangers. And you're a man, so that that also sort of limits a lot of men who work in these parts where in, in these patriarchal traditional societies, they don't have, male reporters don't have as much access th that female reporters do or women reporters do, right? Yeah, exactly. You don't have as much access. You don't get to go into those spaces and talk to talk to women uh, about what their issues are. But things are changing in the in the tribal areas, and that's part of what I wanted to sort of highlight in this story, that more and more women are getting uh, educated. Uh, you know, more and more women are becoming like lawyers and uh, political activists and elected representatives even, um, and they're becoming very sort of outspoken and you can find those people to talk to and they are willing to speak. These tribal areas, they've been sort of a thorn on Pakistan's side. I see it almost like the unruly stepchild and Pakistan is treated, at least Pakistan has treated them that way, um, not with warmth and compassion, but rather sort of harsh punishment. Can you talk about why a little bit? Pakistanis in what I would call the, um, well, what is called the settled areas of Pakistan, the areas outside of the tribal, uh, the tribal region, uh, where the constitution has applied since the country became independent in 1947. A lot of them, especially if you're talking about ethnic groups like Punjabis, uh, don't have any real understanding of how things work in the tribal areas. That's where you go to buy drugs, or that's where you go to buy uh, cars that haven't had to pay any taxes that were imported from Afghanistan, you know, that's their image that they've had. And then after 9-11, they got the image that that's where Al-Qaeda is based. That's where all these suicide bombers that are hitting our, our cities are coming from. Uh, that's where we have to send our soldiers to fight, you know, that's the image they got. And it was reinforced by a, a British colonial sort of legacy. The people in uh, settled parts of Pakistan in cities like Lahore and Islamabad and Karachi, when they wanted to read about the tribal areas, they were reading books written by British colonial officers a hundred years ago, people like Winston Churchill who were posted there uh, in order to suppress rebellions. And so those books talk about the tribes in very Orientalist uh, terms. They don't talk about individuals, they talk about the Masood tribe is famous for this battle, or you know, the Afridi tribe is famous for this time that they kidnapped a British officer, you know? And so those are the stories that ring uh, true in, uh, the, in, in the urban centers of Pakistan. Aside from Peshawar, in Peshawar you, you're closer to the tribal areas and people have a lot of human connection. But if you go to the power centers of Pakistan, if you go to the Islamabad, if you go to Lahore, people never really had a full understanding of what that area was like. And they built up this image of a Pashtun who's like a very warrior-like person, uh, you know, race almost that uh, will fight for their tribe and will do anything to protect the honor of their tribe or the honor of their women, for example. Uh, and this image filtered through even to Pakistani military and the Pakistani military officers who served since 2001 in the tribal areas. A lot of them 
even Afghans who are Pashtuns have sort of internalized this myth of the warrior independent Patan Pashtun. Why is it so detrimental? If you keep having that reputation, then uh, people uh, assume that that's how you want to be treated, even though it's no longer true that that's how you want to be treated. Uh, you know, in the tribal areas, especially like uh, most of the population is under the age of 25. They've never seen, so most of the people there have never seen an era where this like romantic system of tribes governing themselves of or this idea of a Pashtun warrior ever worked. They've never seen this system work. All they've ever seen is uh, Taliban come into their area, uh, you know, beheading their, their elders, uh, killing their most respected people, and then seeing Pakistani soldiers come in and punishing them for what's happening. Indeed. Thank you very much for listening to On Spec, and thanks to Omar for an important story. In our next episode, we'll bring you back to Istanbul and meet a Bolivian street musician. He'll tell us about his existential crises. This episode was edited by the OnSpec team, that's all of us, produced by Oscar Durant and Omar Farouk, and a shout out to Polly Ann, Shala, and Christina Bana for supporting our Kickstarter campaign. We made our goal, guys. Thank you. Mm-hmm.